Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are, Sparrow and Andrew, for our second Baffling Combustions wedge into... Gertrude Stein's essay, Composition as Explanation. So this would be Stein time two. And I believe where we left off was with the word uncanny, which I guess might broadly characterize our approach to this <laughs> essay and also what the essay leaves us with yet. And I, But I think that we may be able to get someplace in this circling back. I think where we left off is it is beautiful it is beautiful perfectly true that a more or less first-rate work of art is beautiful but the trouble is that when that first-rate work of art becomes a classic because it is accepted the only thing that is important from then on to the majority of the acceptors the enormous majority the most intelligent majority of the acceptors is that it is so wonderfully beautiful. Of course, <laughs> it's wonderfully beautiful. Only when it is still a thing irritating, annoying, stimulating, then all quality of beauty is denied to it. Yeah, I wonder if she's being sarcastic when she says uh, was that so wonderfully beautiful. The way you read it, it sounded really sarcastic. And it's yeah. just hard to know, partly because of that even tone that she writes in, what her emotion is, whether it's, you know, a, a combination of uh, irony, satire, and sincerity. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I would guess. Yeah, that was one of actually my kind of minor insights, is that the nature of this work, composition is explanation, is a lecture. It's a spoken mm. document. Yeah. So that when we talk about time in relation to this essay, time of the essay is a spoken track in which what is appearing, the thing seen, is actually not seen. It is the thing heard. Mm. And it's occurring as she is speaking it on those two occasions that it was delivered. I think it may only have been those two occasions mm -hmm. in England. I, I just think that Cambridge. that's interesting is that the nature of this essay is occurring in, in a present tense, albeit 94 years ago. And in that book, uh, Two Lives by Janet Malcolm about uh, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, as I recall from the excerpt I read in The New Yorker, uh, Gertrude Stein would write once a day for an hour as she wrote longhand on pieces of paper. When she finished each page, she would throw it on the ground. Later, Alice B. Toklas would gather up all the pages and type them up. So it sounds like the composition was a kind of performance, like the, 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 the lecturing itself, like the reading of it aloud. It almost sounds like it was a kind of automatic writing that you would just write continuously. I'm not sure, but that's sort of how it sounds. Uh-huh. I like that. She, yeah, uh... so, 
Yeah. Throwing on the floor, maybe that was part of a kind of erotic network or circuitry where no. she would enjoy Alice B. Toklas bending over on the ground to retrieve the pages. Yeah. I don't know. It's a supposition. It's a little passive aggressive, you might say. Right. But oftentimes, like erotic scenarios are... Mm are initiated by kind of that bending over and the revealing <laughs> of the rump, you know, this kind of area of erotic attention, you know, and stimulation and so on. Visually, the thing seen. You should speak for yourself, Sam, when you're discussing the nature of all erotic stimulation. I don't know that Gertrude was standing there watching Alice bend over but maybe just knowing she was eventually going to have to bend over and also maybe she crawled on the ground to pick him up maybe she didn't bend over oh even better <laughs> well, yeah, yeah the way in which i met my wife when well, we were sharing an office i was teaching at hunter and i'd met her before and you know we had a, i thought a very frank and um you know, a kind of instant familiarity that was a bit preternatural. But we were in the office together, and she, there was the printer, and the printer was sort of at this low level. And she bent over to retrieve a piece of paper out of the printer. Wow. And by doing that, her her shirt rose up, and she was wearing a skirt. And she was wearing this purple thong. And the purple thong was revealed, you know, this kind of... T, you know, where you have the band across the, the waist, and then this kind of, you know, the thong part went down into the cheeks of her butt. And um, I was like, oh, you know, suddenly that kind of opened up a, um, a moment at which I was able to perceive her as a, an erotic creature, if that's the right word. Is that... Would that academically go over? As, an, a erotic, little, as an erotic body. I think that, that sounds it. more academic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not objectifying her. I don't know. Even actually, it's more objective, objectifying to say body than creature, because a creature is alive, typically, whereas a body can be alive or dead. But I don't know. Somehow body sounds more literary. Yeah. Well, there's that I don't essay, know. I, think, I don't know. It's all bodies. <laughs> I don't know if um, your experience is analogous to what happened between Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, but I do think that the body is part of composition, and I was struck by the following language from the essay, just a few paragraphs down, and I'm reading this language anew. Um, it's re resonating with me. Uh, in, uh, uh, here, here it goes, and I quote, each period of living differs from any other period of living, not in the way life is, but in the way life is conducted. And that, authentically speaking, is composition. Mm -hmm. and I, thought that was, I thought that was a revealing moment that the, the composition here, if, if we're um, to believe her, authentically speaking, is um, in the way life is conducted. Mm which carries with it all sorts of linguistic, emotional, kinesthetic qualities, bodies uh -huh. and space. And that was eye-opening for me. 
at last time we met, we were scratching our heads trying to figure out what exactly she meant by composition. What, what is it we talk about when we talk about composition here? Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's, it has a real ecology to it. It's, it has a very thick definition of composition. It's not just the poetic act, but it's the embodiment. It's the way of being in space and time. It's the way of perceiving and organizing one's world. And also, mm-hmm. I think there is in her writing in this essay a kind of leaping back and forth from the nature of living to the nature of making art, that the two yes. are kind of one act in a way. And and I just want to point out that the word conducted, the way life is conducted, you know, has a resonance with the conductor of a symphony. Okay. A lot of the language she uses, like the word composition, I was thinking about it also, that uh, composition is a word, well, let me just say what I what I wrote here. Composition is a very important word because it means what something is composed of, among other things. What is the composition of this rock? What are its constituent parts? Everything physical has a composition, and maybe non-physical things too. Also, composition can refer to several arts, at least to music, writing, choreography, and perhaps to all arts, as opposed to just saying, you know, if she had written uh, an essay called uh, uh, writing as explanation or painting as explanation, it would have a much more concrete meaning. But the word composition also has a kind of scientific uh, quality that, and, you know, she was trained, she went to medical school, she was trained somewhat as a scientist. And she's in, I I wrote, she's trying to be a scientist, like Picasso was trying to analyze the cubes in any object to make a series of cubist deductions. Nice, I like that, deductions. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, I get a little turgid when I hear that. (laughs) Turgid, I think is the wrong word. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, Composition means something like putting together, but I guess it's the, what she's talking about too, is the force that puts things together, the decisions Mm. that dictate the assemblage. I kind of wanted to, if I may, I kind of wanted to circle back to this word outlaw, Mm -hmm. which I don't think we really interrogated sufficiently in that when she's talking about outlaw, That is the reason why the creator of the new composition in the arts is an outlaw until he is a classic, etc. There's broadly a moment in between and it's really blah, blah, blah. Is an outlaw. Is somebody who's outside of the law as opposed to an in-law, something like that. So an outlaw is somebody who is operating beyond the bounds without the restrictions of the given laws. And I guess for me, in terms of a choreographer, a sculptor, painter, composer, or a writer, what are the laws that an outlaw in that in these different fields mm-hmm. of human making is stepping outside of? Mm-hmm. I guess what I, I understand that she's saying that the outlaws 
what I think Andrew said, oh, you know, she doesn't use this term, but the avant-garde or, you know, blah, 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 military term, of course. The laws are whatever the given normative modes of composition are, and that the outlaw is stepping outside of those with some sort of forward momentum, some anticipatory Hmm. momentum of what's operating underneath or in the underground what is it in the arts when you use that term underground means some i don't know i mean i just think of the christians worshiping in the catacombs of rome Hmm. in hiding but at any rate i guess that's my understanding and i guess my thought is what are the laws that are operational now that Mm -hmm. you know in this time and i believe very much in a time of war. I believe that we are in a state of undeclared war right now Mm. on this earth. What are the laws that we should be breaking? Okay, that's a great, that's a very compelling question. Can I preface the question with just an observation as to the rules that Gertrude Stein is breaking? Or or are those those already obvious and low-hanging fruit? Okay, well, one thing is um, the linear the relationship mm-hmm. between language and meaning as a, mm-hmm. a linear on a linear trajectory, she, mm-hmm. she um, seems to undermine that. Um, that 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 would be one law that she's violating. Um, obviously, as she um, tells the reader, her adherence to the continuous present, mm-hmm. her refu- her refusal to um, compose across the three temporal spheres of past, present, and future, but remaining continuously present. And I think also um, that she seems to be doing something pretty revolutionary with the sentence mm-hmm. through repetition. Like uh-huh. I, I don't entirely know, but I feel that the lecture or essay, essay lecture, is thinking a lot, reinventing the sentence, what the sentence can do or should do. Yeah. But I don't have a thesis point on that right now. I just wanted to point to a few grammatical laws that she um, seems to be breaking in the space of this text. But um, that can be a preface to Sam's fine question about what what laws should we be breaking right now? What compos- compositional laws? Right, Sam? Hmm. Dig it. Yeah, that I think so. Query. Yeah, why yeah. not? I mean, one thought I've been thinking about lately is because I write songs, I'm a songwriter, you know, in a whatever sort of uh, amateur way. (laughs) And uh, I've been thinking a lot about the three-minute song. You know, when I was maybe 12, Bob Dylan wrote Like a Rolling Stone, went to number two on the pop charts. It was six minutes long. This was so unbelievable. Like, it's hard to explain how revolutionary a six-minute song was. And they would play half the song on uh, WMCA, you know, on the top 40 radio stations. They play the three minute version of the song, which I guess had been somehow crafted for them. And and but who has written a 12 second song like nobody? You know, there's no such thing as a 12 second pop song. And, And it's funny that pop songs are still three minutes long and maybe three minutes is kind of the. Everything is three minutes long in a way. I think TED Talks are always about 14 minutes long. I'm very interested lately in this. I I have this theory that, I don't know if I said this already, that like TV will never be an art form until 
it the, the show could be any length. The fact that it's 30 minutes or 60 mm-hmm. minutes, you know, is like what's preventing it from really being art. Like Ibsen yeah. didn't write things that were 90 minutes long. I like the 12 second song. I think I think about um, you know, because I, I teach a lot. I think about the length of a class meeting. Uh huh. Yeah. The and 50 minute hour. Yeah, exactly. It's it. I I feel it mirrors the psychoanalytic session. Mm-hmm. Some, right. I don't have a historical um, historical proof here, but I feel there's some relationship to it. And as we've shifted to distance learning, um, at my school, there's been a lot of nervousness. What happens if a class is longer than 50 minutes? What happens if it's shorter? Yeah, it's, it creates anxiety. The breaking but, of the uh, of the law, I guess, the traditional form, the, the composition, the compositional and, and, reality of these things. And you're not so much hemmed in by the next class. The reason the classes are 50 minutes long in high school is because the people have to go to and physically go to another class, whereas it's not like that, I think, in, uh, on the line, right? Is that right? Um, it's not like that, or it's it's like that a lot less. So what's happening? Are the, are the classes changing in length or not? It varies from person to person. But I, what do you think about this? I was in a um, professional group, and we were talking about the phenomenon of um, misidentifying someone's gender. That's a big issue in school now. If someone is non-binary um, or if you um, mispronounce their name or get their gendered pronoun wrong, what do you do at that, at that moment? And hmm. I was told by someone <laughs> who's fairly woke, I was told, um, well, you can't apologize. Oh, it's, it's what's the no word? Long- it's demeaning to apologize. Or it just it absolves you too quickly from responsibility for having made a mistake if you say oh geez you know i'm sorry i didn't know my bad um now i know (laughs) you're not supposed to say i'm sorry it is is interesting to think about how these language games really do have loss what what did your friend say what do you say you say oh that must make you feel really upset i can um really empathize with that i'll try to do better next time that's what he said or she yeah. said, or they said, wow. And maybe, there's, maybe there's wisdom there. I don't know. It seems a little controlling to me. Uh, it I, seems I a think, little uh, presumptuous, as if, like, every time yeah. you get someone's gender wrong, they're, they're going to have to be traumatized. Like, what kind of uh, conclusion is that? I mean, doesn't that, what's the word, condescend to them worse than apologizing? But if I were try to, to try to explain what you're, what you're, um, what you're saying, it would not be... Um, it would not be taken well. Mm. It would not be taken well. It would be seen as me probably leveraging my privilege to make excuses or um, mm. I, I don't know. It's challenging. My point my point is just that there are a lot of laws. Are those the laws we should be breaking, Sam? Should we just go around calling everybody her and like the hell with it? Just gonna, from mm-hmm. today I'm going to call yeah, everyone guess, her. Tomorrow I'm going to yeah. call everyone they. That's it. I guess in semantics, there's now a given that gender is this fluid thing and that one self-identifies one way or another. That our distributor world, um, in these, uh, after their names, they have a parentheses in which they, you know, they say she, her, or mm-hmm. him, 
his and they give you a legend to follow in communicating in responding to the email so that you are approaching them with the with the appropriate gender signifier mm-hmm. so uh, nice. and so that's this is now though that's kind of the law right so i don't know i don't that doesn't seem to resonate with me to this outlaw thing oftentimes there's a technological changes like the technology of the first world war changed mm. the way in which the world was seen the horrors of the western liberal tradition had produced the first world war oh gee we better pull back from that or the uh, rising of motion pictures in part informs cubism the breaking of the picture plane so mm. that there's always there's always a kind of technological thing also maybe at the back of it which stein doesn't seem to talk about or the prevalence of the typewriter that was an enormous change for writing suddenly you mm. had control over the page and could do all sorts of innovative things so i think you know i've i've often thought that you know history progresses through three stages one is technological innovation that mm-hmm. leads to a social reorganization and then a cultural adjustment or a cultural amelioration or synthesis that occurs to accommodate those ch- the the technological social mashup yeah I, but I, I have to disagree that i think i Good. said this already but i I do think that's exactly the point that uh, that Stein is making in this essay when she said the first line is there is singularly nothing that makes a difference, a difference in beginning and in the middle and in ending, except that each generation has something different at which they are all looking. So I think she's talking about and I did look up her dates. She's born before I thought she was 18. 74, February 3rd, so that makes her a uh, Aquarius. You know, she she wrote Three Lives in 1905, pretty sure. Oh, that makes yeah, her okay. 29. So, and then she died in 1946, July 27th, 1946. You know, okay. she's living through an incredible period. Like, we think that we're going through this technological uh, revolution because now we have a little screen that shows us videos of cats but you know a lot of this uh, innovations you were talking about that utterly transformed the world the airplane the telephone electricity in homes um poison, the motion picture all this happened in her you know in her life in fact it all happened before she wrote this essay in uh, what was it 25 right uh 25 yeah, yeah 25 yeah, 20, yeah 1925 so, you know, most of these, uh, even radio had begun by then, most of these utter transformations of society had taken place. And I think that's what she means. You know, it must have been sort of obvious in 1925 when you say uh, that something different at which they are all looking, people would know, oh, that means all this incredible new world we live in that's completely different than the world of our parents. Did we need to begin again. Need to begin again. Did we need to begin again. Need to begin again. But those are all technological changes that you've articulated that yeah. require a resynthesis. Yes, right? yeah, no, I'm agreeing with you. So I think I, your thesis I just, I, 
is, oh, or, I don't know if I'm agreeing with it, but I'm saying that uh, that uh, Gertrude Stein is agreeing with it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's something that's not present in the essay um, that, you know, seems to be like those are maybe the ways in which the outlaw profile is filled out is those people that are working with new technology and accommodating the possibilities that arise out of them. There's sir. a story that I read in her, uh, there's a great book called Picasso by Gertrude Stein, uh, like a kind of portrait of Picasso. And in it, as I recall, she and Picasso are flying in a plane for the first time. And they look down, it's the first time they've ever seen the world from above. And they look down at the fields in the countryside of France as seen from an airplane. And Gertrude Stein turns to Picasso and says, now that's Cubism. Or maybe it's Picasso who turns to Gertrude Stein. So it's kind of this point that the technology allows us to see, well, in this case, the revolution of Cubism comes first, and then afterwards, you look at the technology and it proves that that your intuition was correct. Was huh, that a change of perspective mm. leads to the revelation of patterns that we've mm. all been living within unbeknownst. Yeah, yeah. Right. Suddenly we can see from above like God. The allegory of the cave, right? Huh. Believing, mm-hmm. believing in the forms that are projected onto the wall, because that's what you're habituated into, and then getting mm-hmm. out of prison and beholding the, the light of true knowledge, the sun, mm-hmm. and having that transform your perspective philosophically. On the outlaw profile often includes a kind of naivete mm-hmm. of seeing, I mean, uh, going back to our friend Marcel Proust, Uh, What did he say? We don't need new horizons. We need new eyes. (laughs) Like a child can see a little bit, maybe like the story of uh, the emperor's new clothes, where everyone believes that the emperor is wearing clothes because the emperor tells everyone, you know, only stupid people cannot see these beautiful robes of mine. And everyone convinces themselves they can see it except one child who says the emperor is naked and suddenly everyone realizes, oh yeah, the emperor actually is naked. Yeah. yeah isn't that a Thomas, Thomas Kuhn's theory in the history of scientific revolutions is that he cites some psychological experiment. If you're playing a card game, you played it over and over and over and there's a certain expectation as to how it works and what cards will be yielded through the game. Mm. Even if they change the deck, you will continue to see it as you previously saw it. That even if you're seeing different cards in a different formation, that your mind does a correction because it's been habituated to see it a certain way. And he oh, extends yeah. that, that psychology, that psychological experiment, to um, the willingness of scientists to, um, to disclaim the veracity of a new theory initially for some time uh-huh. till, until it can no longer be denied. Yeah, which is kind of exactly the process that Gertrude Stein's talking about here, where she says how uh, the uh, the new work of art is uh, completely, uh, yeah, denied. Of course, it is beautiful, but first all beauty in it is denied, and then all the beauty of it is accepted. So she uses that word 
accepted and denied, kind of the same words you would use for a scientific theory. Yeah, Yeah. what's interesting is uh, I think last time we got hung up with this term equilibration. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the state of equilibrium. And it turns out that that term is is the foundational term to the uh, Jean Piaget's study of children. Yes. Andrew, equilibration... Uh, according to Piaget, is that um, psychological development is driven by this this processes of equilibration, which encompasses assimilation, namely, you know, people's capacity to transform incoming information so that it fits within their given schema and accommodation you know, huh. their their process of accommodating new knowledge, assimilating it into their um, previous way of seeing things, yeah. Extending Piaget, he believed that the, as you graduate, if you will, um, to the next cognitive level, he was a developmental cognitive psychologist, um, there needed to be an experience that he referred to as disequilibration. Huh. That disequilibration is what threw us off and allowed us to enter into um, an expanded consciousness where we could accommodate, gradually would come to find equilibration again, but it would be on a different level. Your consciousness would have had expanded. The right? disequilibration is, is like you're throwing out the old paradigm. And then for a while, yes. you kind of don't know where you are. You're like a two-year-old saying no constantly. You're an adolescent who's in a rebellion against, as James Dean said, when they asked him, what are you rebelling against? He said, what do you got? Like, you're just in a total <laughs> rebellion. You don't know what you're rebelling against. That's disequilibration, I think, right? But disequilibration is when you just, your your paradigm cannot accommodate or assimilate mm. uh, a, new, a new experience. Mm. That There's going to be something that just won't fit. Um, and that's going to require that you grow the paradigm. It's going to be a stressful experience for you. It's not a pleasant experience. And it often occurs at moments of developmental transition. Like maybe this uh, quarantine, this coronavirus, this, you know, maybe we're all going through, even the essential workers who are in some ways maintaining their normal lives, are even they are going through their disequilibration because everything's different. You almost can't remember how things used to be. It's almost, it seems like a fairy tale that one time you went into a bar and there were hundreds of people and you sort of, you know, slipped between the other people. You know, it happened six months ago, but five months ago, but it seems like that never happened. Well, you know, my rap is Mm. that we, you know, I've said this so many times, that we're all prisoners of a world that no longer exists. You know, that we all are still dragging around or operating within conceptual domains that have been shattered, you know, social structures, the way we are to each other, the way time is. We need a new composition for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, I must say that as I'm reading this essay, Gertrude Stein does not think it's a big job to create a new form of composition. She seems to be saying, as I read it, that 
there, there's a different way that everyone sees everything based on, as she puts it, something different at which they are all looking, and that will automatically create the new composition. What won't happen is the majority of people will not accept it because of indolence. As I read the essay, she's saying that something <laughs> called indolence, which basically means laziness. People are too lazy to accept the new type of composition, but it's not something you have to uh, struggle for or, or work towards. It's just natural. As things change, the world changes, your composition is going to change because I think, as you said, Andrew, your kind of whole way of looking at the world is going to change. That's also, though, perhaps a survival uh, mechanism. Does she use that word indolent? I don't recall. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful. Um, yeah, she does. Uh, oh, yeah. Here yeah, it is. I, mean, I, I, I sort of think that indolence to a certain extent is a sort of survival mechanism because, as mm. I recall, somebody or other said that human beings can't take too much reality. Yeah, T.S. Yeah, let me read it, the indolent line. I mean, it's an endlessly long sentence, but let me read Oh, good. Um, they all, I'll start in the middle of it. They all really would enjoy the created so much better just after it has been made than when it is already a classic. But it is perfectly simple that there is no reason why the contemporaries should see, because it would not make any difference as they lead their lives in the new composition anyway. And as everyone is naturally indolent, why naturally they don't see? <laughs> naturally. It's a natural thing not mm -hmm. to see the new yeah. art. And I guess part of her thesis around the First World War is that it was a, an event that forced people in somewhat at a gruesome scale to see, confront their assumptions about the normative conduct of life? Is that yeah, what I'm hearing? I think so. And just to add a little more specifics onto that general bone, I would point to the return to the linear again. Or one thing that her generation realized is that progress was a fallacy. This mm, notion yeah. that we're move, we've moved from the dark ages to enlightenment, to scientific revolution, to bigger and better and greater mm. things, is um, erroneous. To quote mm -hmm. Thomas Hardy, I'll paraphrase Thomas Hardy because they were um, contemporaries. This is a poem called Christmas, I'm going to get it wrong, Christmas 1918. Peace wow. on earth was said, we pray it and pay a thousand priests to bring it. But after 2,000 years of mass, we've got as far as poison gas. Gertrude Stein's notion, right, of um, continuing again culturally people were the modernists were they it was the the end of the world right it was an apocalyptic experience that we can no longer invest in superficial theories of theological scientific or cultural progress that's that's changed we're in a new reality now and i think on the level of grammar she's enacting this philosophical hmm. point yeah, I mean, I don't see her talking one way or the other about uh, progress. I see her kind of as a scientist and that she's just saying things change from generation. Nothing, as I'll quote it exactly, nothing changes from generation to generation except the things seen, and that makes a composition. And about World War One, she's saying, as I see it, she's saying, Lord Grey remarked that when the generals before the war talked about the war, they talked about it as a 19th century war. 
although to be fought with 20th century weapons. And then she's sort of ridiculing that idea. They, they were still thinking in 19th century terms. They just thought, we'll fight an old fashioned war and we'll use the new weapons, the airplanes, these uh, mm. uh, cannons or whatever, giant uh, weapons, uh, mechanized mm. weapons in the old fashioned way. You can't do that. But she seems no, to, no. she doesn't seem to be deeply disillusioned by the war or really to see, to talk about its devastation. She's more talking about yeah. it as, as if it were an artwork. So analogously, you know, we're confronting the reality of our present, mm-hmm. which involves pandemic and its particular, at this juncture, rapid, ra- raging bloom through the United States and through Central and South America, actually, what used to be called the New World, plus the rise of fascism, you know, these Mm -hmm. ultra right wing authoritarian, uh, what Putin, you know, going back to the Steele dossier, talks about the reconfiguring of global governance according to a 19th century view of, of um, nation states, hmm. you know, this nationalism, et cetera. And so we're confronting these various things as well as the imminent dissolution of the natural equilibriums and balances of climate, of the Gulf Stream, of all these systems that we've existed within due to global warming, fronting these things with 20th century grammar. Yeah. And that, or even 19th century grammar. I mean, that's one of the things I say about Trump is that, you know, it seemed to me part of the reason he won is those speeches that Hillary Clinton gave, they could have been given by Grover Cleveland. You know, they were like, my American compatriots, ah, together we will march forward. And it was like, and then Trump was like, hey, she's a loser. She's a liar. You know, he talked in the language of Twitter. He talked in this modern uh, vernacular, you know, very stupid language of reality TV. And he was embodying this new way of thinking, the new way, of, the new, new grammar of the current age. And so I would say that a lot of people are approaching the, the our 21st century's problems with 19th century, not even with 20th century uh, thinking, but with 19th century thinking. Thinking, I guess, as, you know, grammar to a certain extent defines the limits of our thought. Yeah. That language bounds that of which we can speak. To go back to one of the other Steins, Wittgenstein, right? (laughs) The limits of my language or the limits of my world. One thing I wanted to say also, if I may, is that, you know, the title of this essay, I was thinking Mm. about this, it's Composition is Explanation, but I think that Stein is also goofing with us because the way we're talking about it and the way we're trying to understand it is actually the reverse. (laughs) You know, that it's actually explanation as composition. Yeah, I have the same thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that this is kind of way of dealing, you know, with a reversal, reverse. 
it's um, <laughs> in terms of time, it's actually backwards. Do you see what I mean? Also, I think maybe she does also mean composition as explanation as she defines composition as sort of just the way that we live. The way that we conduct ourselves, yeah, the way that yeah, we Yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that's the explanation. The, the way that we conduct ourselves is itself the, its own explanation. I, I mean, I think that might be I think that one that's thing she's fair. One of the things that we talked about in our first talk is that for Stein, the nature of words is that they're objects. It's yeah. Things. Her literary works. I actually, I did, you know, you know, this is to a certain extent that she's the conceit is that she's trying to explain her mode of composition, right? Yeah. And yeah. that that idea of composition as explanation, she doesn't do much explaining. She does enacting. You know, mm-hmm. she enacts, she uses words to enact, not to explain, not to analyze, not to step outside of the inherent theater of the dynamic between words. But she's seeking to foment or construct or compose an experience in which we can see things as they are. According yeah, I, to her view, say. I wrote this little speech here, which I want to make now, if you don't mind. I'm saying, Picasso became aware for the first time in the history of Western art that all drawings were composed of lines. He saw the lines as more important than the subject of the drawing. He saw the lines rather than the objects that the lines depicted. And that's cubism. You know, that the lines... Are, are with the subject of the painting, not the object that they supposedly depict. And in the same way, Stein, for the first time, noticed that all writing is composed of words. The words became primary, not what they described. It's as if the words were suddenly visible and had always, before that, they were, words were merely carriers of thought. In Stein's writing, the thought disappeared behind the words, the way the subject in Cubism disappeared behind the lines. And yet, Stein always had a subject, as did Picasso. Neither of them became pure abstractionists. So Stein is writing about something, and the thing that she's writing about is kind of present behind all the words, the the way uh, Picasso is drawing a, uh, he's drawing Canweiler, his uh, art dealer, and it looks like a whole bunch of lines, but behind that somewhere is Canweiler. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that's a that's a decent. Uh, I think that's a fair proposition, except that I'm not sure I would put it all on the rugged uh, Spanish conquistador guy, you know, and stuff. <laughs> you know, Matisse and Cezanne and the whole impressionist uh, movement had that sense of the the line of the not representation, but the canvas itself being the thing. And in fact, you know, I would say the, you know, I hate to, you know, use sort of like trot out, you know, the, you know, the um, Trojan horses of conventionally ascribed great painters, but Van Gogh, you know, in which even, not even the line, like he transcends the line. It's actually just energy. As I wrote this, uh, my little speech, I was struck 
also by the oversimplification uh, of its thesis. But uh, I'm a lover of Cubism. I think Cubism might be my favorite art, and I think it might be Cubism comes out of a bromance. Is <laughs> very important to me personally that supposedly Picasso and Brock, when they were making their, you know, seminal, <laughs> to use a whatever bromance-like word, uh, paintings, they uh, it got to the point where neither one knew who had made which painting. I don't know. There's just something about the excitement of the break with everything of Cubism really excites me. And, you know, Gertrude Stein was there, was involved with it, Hmm. was friends. But also understanding Cubism arose out of oceanic art, out of masks uh, coming out of, yeah, on this new way of seeing. And also um, Duchamp. I don't, you know, Duchamp did things within a Cubist syntax. Um, So the idea was... As Kafka said, the idea was in the air. 12-second song. I think <laughs> that's got real legs. That's an oversimplification that needs to happen. Yeah. I may have written 12-second songs. I'm not sure. I mean, certainly I write sometimes quite brief songs. Yeah, it's a weird well, thing, which actually is kind of relevant to this essay. When you write really short pieces, they tend to form themselves into series, even if you don't intend them to. And, and they seem to, they sort of want to glom together and make a longer work. In my explanation is composition thesis that, um, you know, so we've looked at this essay, but I wanted to read a little bit from The Making of Americans. And this is a random passage, but I just thought I would read this into the record because in some ways this is what this essay is about. Many go on all their life copying their own kind of repeating. Many go on all their life copying someone else or some other kind of men or woman's kind of repeating, some kind of being that they have not in them. Everyone mostly has in them their own repeating sometime in their living. This is real being in them. Many billions are always all through their living, copying their own repeating. Some have this in them because they are indolent in living. It is easier for such of them just to go on with an automatic copying of their own repeating rather than really live inside them they're repeating this is now a history of such a one Hmm. i mean to be honest (laughs) that's that was a random opening to the page it was interesting to see the word indolent there but irrespective i mean you know she's right this book is uh 900 this is the dalky edition uh you know 900 and 25 tight little, you know, tight pages, you know, tight letting. But the truth is, on every page, there's something going on. You know, there's an operation of breakthrough or something where she's saying something that's deeply touching, real, and who knows, but that this is a way of talking about what we're talking about when we're trying to talk about what we are within the making of Americans. 
which she wrote in France, I guess, right? She, I think she was in France from around 1905, 1903. 1903. She moved to France in 1903. And and the making of Americans is considerably after that, I think, right? It's 1913. It's, it's, I don't recall. It's interesting that you read what you just read, Sam, because this morning I was reading the book The River of Consciousness oh. by the by the late neurologist Oliver Sacks. Hmm. Uh-huh. And I was reading uh, a chapter on the creative self hmm. about the movement from um, mere repetition of a form that already exists to the creation of something new. And I'm huh. just going to read, read a few sentences aloud. Oh, yeah. They're somewhat banal, banal, but it dovetails. And I quote, it takes a special energy over and above one's creative potential, a special audacity or subversiveness to strike out in a new direction once one is settled. It is a gamble, as all creative projects must be, for the new direction may not turn out to be productive at all. Creativity Mm. involves not only years of conscious preparation and training, but unconscious preparation as well. This incubation period is essential to allow the subconscious assimilation and incorporation of one's influences and sources. That's interesting dovetailing with Gertrude Stein in terms of using everything. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Using everything, like using everything that is your experience, using everything that you've gone through in, as she herself writes, you know, preparing. Preparing. Yeah, yeah. that's that's interesting, because that's a phrase that's sort of stuck, you know, that I couldn't quite understand. But I could dig that, you know, using everything means using everything that you've come in touch with, that they all uh, are participating in making this new form. The using everything brings us to composition and to this composition, a continuous present and using everything and beginning again. Mm. So there she gives her sort of summation. Do you guys feel beauty? Do you feel beauty when you're, you're, you're hearing Gertrude Stein, when you're hearing her language? Does it resonate with you as a beautiful thing? I think that's a super duper interesting point is that I believe that this essay, which we are reading and reading back to each other and reading over and over, you know, certain passages, etc. But I believe that it is an inherently musical composition, actually, and that it is beautiful. Like the more time you spend with it, the more its gait and accumulation and its force comes to really arise and be this beautiful object in real time that one is dancing with. Beautiful. Yeah, man. I mean, I I was thinking about it while doing my yoga today, and I was thinking, it is painful to read Gertrude Stein. And then I was thinking, what does that remind me of? And then I looked it up, you know, the, the genius of the internet. Somehow I found this line which is not very similar, not very similar. It's a quatrain by Edward Lear. How pleasant to know Mr. Lear, who has written such volumes of stuff, 
Some think him ill-tempered and queer, but a few think him pleasant enough. And I was thinking, yes, it is painful to read Gertrude Stein, who has written such volumes of stuff. <laughs> Some think uh -huh. her ill-tempered and queer, but a few think her pleasant enough. And then I was thinking, it reminded me of, you know, particularly the first time I read it, it reminded me of how it used to be at the Salvation Army. Before they'd give you a meal, you had to listen to a sermon. And there used to be this mission that I used to go to when I lived in the East Village. It was on 3rd Avenue, just below 14th Street. And once in a while, I was passing by. It seemed to be it was always open. And there were always these homeless people in the pews. And there was always this minister giving this incredibly boring sermon. And they, everybody was bored, even the minister. And um, they were just enduring it so they could later get a crappy bowl of soup. And that is how it felt to drag myself through this essay the first time I read it. But it, then it also reminded me of the period when I was listening to Ornette Coleman for the first time, which I think was around 1989 and 1990. Uh, and at, when I first listened to it, it just sounded like slightly out of tune, speeded up bebop. And I was like, what is this? And then after listening to it over and over and over again, I suddenly realized that it was something that was so complex, it seemed simple, or possibly something that was so simple, it became complex. And that reminds me of Gertrude Stein. I mean, I have to agree ultimately with Sam that the more I read it, the more I kind of live inside this uh, essay, the more it's it's like Ornette. Yeah, after a while, you start to kind of get the rhythm of it. There's an English uh, literary critic or theorist who, and it's not Ebsen, it's one of those other guys, I, I used to know the name, who, you know, had this thesis that, no, 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 it was earlier. Um, who said that one of the aspects that makes a classic poem, that makes, you know, a poem stand out from the rest, is that you keep seeing it, that it's mm -hmm. a function of its repetition, its anthologization, it keeps coming up, so you keep reading the same poem, mm. And it's an aspect of familiarity. It becomes like part of your family. It becomes part of your thinking family of, of associations and history, you know, in, in, yeah. um, in lifetime. But then you also wonder if there's something arbitrary about that. You know, if uh, like there might be a poem just as good as uh, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. And yet you've seen it so many thousands of times, it's, it's become, and there's a Joyce Kilmer rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike, the writer of that poem. No one can name a second poem he ever wrote. And is it a good poem? Is it a terrible poem? Is it a kind of a terrible and good poem? Hard to know, really. So we we kind of have danced around this thing, and we sort of haven't come to these three or five different registers of time that Stein ah. articulates in this essay. But we've done our best. But I do have one thing to say, and that is this idea of the continuous present. I have issues with that 
idea, I guess, not issues so much, but I guess what I want to talk about and advocate for is this idea of a five-second present, like a <laughs> present that's five seconds long that sort of replicates, you know, a breathing in and a breathing out, takes mm. approximately five seconds. And I think that's a sort of human range of present that we can stretch out in and inhabit comfortably versus, um, you know, this idea of the the now, you know, the now, which strikes me as sort of like the difference between silence and kind of an idea of quietness. Do you know <laughs> that we just need something that's human and habitable and familiar, you know, and not to get hung up with like, oh, I'm not present, uh, 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 but just, you know, take a breath. My wristwatch is always advocating breathe. It's true. Technology. The wristwatch says tick tock. It just doesn't say talk. You know, it's not in the continuous present. It's in this repetition of that takes about one second. <laughs> but mm. yeah, I, I agree with, I mean, I hate uh, being in the moment. It's something I'm like bitterly against. My wife was for a while obsessed on Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. And I would just like go into long, stupid tirades. Maybe we could talk about that. The oh, evil sure. of uh, being in the present. The evil it's, of now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. The weakness right. of now. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.